Justin just really sung the whole book of Ruth. Uh, and if you haven't been with us uh, at all the last few weeks, uh, this is our last uh, sermon on Ruth. There have been four. There's four chapters in Ruth. We've done a chapter a week. Uh, but let me just summarize it quickly before we get going so it makes some sense. Uh, let's keep doing the family tree thing. Uh, beginning of the book, we find out uh, that there is a father. His name is Elimelech. Uh, the father, the husband, Elimelech, uh, his wife, the mother, is Naomi. You have Elimelech and Naomi. Elimelech and Naomi have two sons, Malon and Chilion. And they move uh, to Moab from Israel. Uh, their move to Moab was because there was a famine in Israel. But it wasn't just uh, so that they could survive. That wasn't really the only reason that they went. The other reason they went is so that they wouldn't have to repent. Uh, God had told them that they, if, they had ex- if God's people experienced famine in Israel, the, the reason they were uh, was because they were in rebellion to him. And he gave them a way out. The way out was to repent. Well, they didn't repent. They just moved on to Moab. And so they go to Moab, and uh, Malon and Shilion, the two sons, marry uh, daughters, Orpah and Ruth. Well, then uh, it gets worse. There was famine, but then Elimelech dies. Neither of the women, Orpah or Ruth, are able to bear children. The boys die, Malon and Chilion. You just have the three women left at this point. Naomi, Orpah, Ruth. That's it. Naomi hears that uh, things are better back in Israel, and so she goes to both of them and releases them. Says, women, stay here. You're Moabites. You don't have a chance uh, of getting married and having children if, we, if you go back to Israel with me. Because she knew that they would both want to. They loved her dearly. She, wasn't able, uh, she, she was able to talk Orpah out of it. Orpah stayed there in Moab, not <laughs> Ruth. Ruth goes with her. She pledged herself to her. They go back uh, to Israel. Not knowing how they would be provided for. Uh, and so Ruth uh, comes up with a plan. She's going to go glean in the fields. Uh, gleaning in the fields was for sojourners, foreigners. Uh, it was for the poor and it was for the widowed. Uh, Ruth met all three classifications. So she goes and she gleans and uh, is able to provide uh, for Naomi. In part because of what she gleaned, but also in part because uh, the field in which she was gleaning was Boaz. And Boaz was abundantly generous to this woman. Boaz, too, is single. Uh, that was chapter 2. Chapter 3, uh, Naomi and Ruth kind of collaborate in some ways and come up with a plan for them to have a redeemer. There was a way out. God in the law had given a way out for the widows, and it was to be redeemed by a, by a, a, a near family member. And Boaz just so happened to be, be in the line of Naomi. They were cousins or something, somehow. And um, so she says, hey, go, go to Boaz, uh, make some advances on him, and he will take you in, and then uh, he will marry you, which will mean that he redeems us, and he's going to have to provide for us. And so that's what she does. And Boaz, uh, we close the chapter with Boaz, he really has head over heels uh, for this one, but he says, you know, um, I, I'm really for you, but I can't commit to you fully because there's one who's nearer than I. You have someone that you're closer relative to, than I am. I really don't have first rights to you. Someone else does. And that's what we read about here. We're left in this tension as Ruth asks Boaz to marry her. He agrees on this condition. And we don't know if the near redeemer is going to claim Ruth and Naomi uh, for his own or not. And that's what we find out in chapter 4. So let's read chapter 4 together. And we'll get into it. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, 
of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he, the near redeemer, said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom of former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The word of the Lord. Um, you guys may not know this, but I get asked to preach at churches a lot. Um, it's not because I'm any good. It's just because I'm available on Sunday mornings. You know, I, I'm, I'm here with you guys. And uh, so the other churches in our denomination that are anywhere close to here, I uh, know that I'm one of the few preachers that's available on Sunday morning. So they asked me to come. And invariably, uh, when I go, uh, the older people, they love to talk to me afterwards. And uh, last week I preached in Danville at Grace Presbyterian Church. And I preached the same passage I did with you guys. I did Ruth chapter 3. And an older gentleman comes up to me afterwards, and I'm always thinking, all right, this guy's either going to kind of pat me on the head like a grandfather to a grandson and say, good job, son. Um, or he's going to Monday 
morning quarterback this thing. In other words, he's going to give me his two cents on my sermon. Uh, that's usually what happens when older gentlemen uh, come up to me after the service. Uh, but not this time. This time was totally different. This is my new friend. His name's Harry Mack. And Harry Mack came up to me. He shook my hand and he gave me a piece of paper. And he said, this is my story. It's a lot like Naomi's. I hope it encourages you. That was it. He walked off. And I put this piece of paper in my Bible and I thought, who knows what this, you know, who knows what this guy's story is. And so I read it on Monday morning. Sat in there till Monday morning. And uh, on Monday I read it. And here's roughly his story. He grew up in Pennsylvania. Uh, he went off to college. And after college, he went into the military. When he was done with the military, he moved back to his hometown. We moved back to his hometown. Uh, he married his high school sweetheart. Uh, and they uh, lived in a trailer park in a trailer. And they had two daughters. And he worked in this factory. It was a factory that so many people had grown up in. It was what really kind of what he had dreamed of, a very stable life in his hometown. This was, this was his dream. And after he'd been at the factory for a while, uh, he'd kind of worked his way up the ladder. Uh, the whole factory was uh, a union, and uh, the union went on strike. And so he was without a job for six months. And so without a job for six months, that means he doesn't get paid for six months. Uh, it's a small town, and so everybody knows who works at the factory, so the other potential employers wouldn't hire him because at any time the, the, the strike could be off, and he goes back to work, and they lose their employee. So things are really, really tight, and in the midst of this, he gets invited to church, and he's converted. And after he's converted, before he goes back to work, uh, he gets a job from the guy who owned the trailer park to cut down Christmas trees. He was so thankful. He goes back to work, and shortly after going back to work, through a weird, really weird series of events, he ends up working for the CIA. And he spends his whole career there with the CIA. I, I, I mean, as the last, when I was reading the story, I was like, that's the weirdest thing that could possibly happen. And then uh, he goes to work at his CIA. Things are going great through the rest of his, uh, you know, as he's getting older. His two daughters are growing up. His oldest daughter uh, goes off to the military and marries uh, a military man on a Saturday. The next Saturday, Mr. Mack attends her funeral. She died in a car wreck on the way to her honeymoon. And then in the story, he said four years ago, uh, his only remaining child, she died of a heart attack. So here this elderly man is, and he, his, both his daughters had beat him to the grave. What do you do? Emptiness. What does fullness look like for Mr. Mack? Here you have this older man, this military veteran, this retired CIA. He's in the final stage of his life. What in the world does fullness look like for him? Well, he writes this in the end of his story. He said, the Lord provided me comfort through his people. He's given me spiritual strength that I can't explain. He's taught me to trust him. Fullness, isn't it? He's still hurting, clearly. But the Lord's been good to him. He's blessed him. And in this story of Ruth, we see the same pattern, the same pattern of uh, fullness. That's what we had at the very beginning of the book. This full family. They're provided for because they're in Moab where there's not a famine. But then it goes down into emptiness very quickly. And we've been in this escalation towards fullness the last couple weeks. And it, it reaches its pinnacle tonight. 
And I think this same pattern is in our lives. We talked about this J-shaped trajectory that we're on. Uh, we're created in the image of God. We've uh, fallen in Adam. We've fallen into sin. We experience pain in our life. We are rebels to God's cause. But he doesn't leave us there. He comes after us and, pursue, and pursues us in Jesus Christ. And resurrection begins to happen. So we're on this J-shaped curve. It's the way our trajectory goes because it's the trajectory of our Lord, too. Think about Jesus. Jesus came from heaven, pretty high up, fullness. And emptiness begins to come as he takes on a body. He's rejected by men. He dies. He dies a torturous death. But then he raises again. And we, his followers, we are united with him in his death and in his resurrection. So we should be surprised when suffering comes. And suffering comes in a whole host of ways. It could be persecution. It could be the death of a loved one like it was for Mr. Mack. It could be a personal illness. It could be struggling with a substance. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be a financial hardship. It could be dying to a dream. It could be forgiving someone who's wronged you. All those are these many deaths that shadow the macro death of our Lord. And my hope is that Ruth 4 shows us that the gospel gives us this framework to suffer well. My hope is that Ruth chapter 4 puts to death our cynicism because we see that God really does seek to fill us. He really does want to bless us. And he wants to bless us in the places where we experience emptiness and suffering. And last, um, last week, uh, where we left off Boaz, uh, Boaz is laying there on the threshing floor. Ruth has come and made an advance at him. And he doesn't make a sexual advance in return, but he does bless her. He does, <laughs> really just says he's interested. And when he says he's uh, interested, he tells her, hey, there's this near redeemer. Uh, I really hope this thing works out because I'm going to go to him and, and really hope he says no. And you can see him. He's got this anxiety. He doesn't know how this is going to work out. He wants Ruth but doesn't know if he's going to have her. And as he walks from the threshing floor to the gates of the city, he comes up with this really gutsy plan to become Ruth's husband and Naomi's redeemer. And his plan is, is that he knows uh, how to get at this, this near redeemer. He's heard something about him, so he concocts this brilliant negoti negotiation strategy. And did you catch it? Did you catch the brilliance of verses 3 and 4? Boaz tells this near redeemer, the near redeemer is unnamed. Uh, in the Hebrew, you could very easily translate this as just Mr. So-and-so, <laughs> is what you could call him. And he's the one who's got rights to Naomi. He's the one who's got rights to the family's land. So it's a really appealing offer that Boaz puts on the table. As far as Mr. So-and-so knows, all he's going to have to do is take care of this aging woman for a few years, and then he's going to get her land for free. You see it? And he agrees to it. He says, I'll take you on that deal. But you see, Boaz, his trump card, don't you? He didn't say a word about Ruth. And then he puts Ruth on the table after he's left her out. Why does he do that? Well, I think there's lots of reasons he left her out of the deal, but I think the biggest one comes down to money. See, Ruth is going to live a whole lot longer than Naomi. And the longer Ruth lives, the more it's going to cost Mr. So-and-so. He's going to have to marry Ruth. He's going to have to ensure that she has children. And those children would not share his name, but would share her husband's name, Melon. 
then after she had children, he's going to have to take care of those children. And those children, not his children, not him, would be the ones who'd get to inherit the land that Naomi has. So Boaz, what he does is he gets Mr. So-and-so all jacked up about the deal. And then he delivers this crushing blow so that he's more likely to say no. And Boaz is right. He does say no. The Redeemer isn't going to take the deal because it's going to cost him money. It's going to cost him his reputation. And on the face of it, it seems like Mr. So-and-so is a really, really savvy businessman. He's done the math in his head. It just doesn't work out. But the problem is the math really doesn't matter. See, it's not just turning down the deal that Mr. So-and-so does, but he also refuses to obey. He refuses his responsibility. According to God's law, it was his responsibility to take Ruth and Naomi in. It's his job to care for his wider family and redeem family property. So you've got this foil of Mr. So-and-so and his Boaz. See, Boaz is working with a totally different set of criteria than Mr. So-and-so to make his decision. Mr. So-and-so asks questions like, what's in it for me? Will it fulfill me? Will I enjoy it? What will it cost me? Boaz, on the other hand, is asking very different questions. I call them the Jesus questions. He says, what does God require of me? What brings God glory? Who's lonely? Who doesn't fit in? Whom can I love? See, Mr. So-and-so is a lot like us. He's calculating the cost. He's protecting himself. But that's really bad gospel arithmetic. Now, it's true. Sacrificial love is going to cost you money. It is going to cost you short-term social benefits. But it also gets you a name. See, it's, it's no accident that Mr. So-and-so has no name. It's no accident that we're talking about Boaz and Ruth thousands of years later. So is it a risk to love? Sure. But I would argue that it's a risk not to love. You miss out on a legacy if you don't sacrificially love others. And you may never know what you've missed out on. When you start making, you don't know what you're going to miss out on if you make decisions the way Mr. So-and-so makes decisions. So let me ask you some questions. Are you playing it safe? Is there a room for a new person in your life? Do you have the world all figured out and computed with tidy little lives, neatly organized with no place for a curveball from God that you didn't see coming? What criteria do you demand others meet for you to be in relationship with them? See, if you begin to move through the world with the gospel, it means that you're going to be looking for these opportunities to enfold others that other folks would consider needy, that other people consider awkward, that other people consider costly, and it's because they are. But you are not their savior. You are folding them into Jesus' community. So if we're all looking at the world like this, looking at people like this, looking at our neighborhood like this, you, you're not the one who bears all responsibility. All of us are looking for these opportunities. So introduce us to your needy friends. We'll help you. And because eventually you're going to be needy too. You're going to be awkward too. You're going to uh, be a liability to people like Mr. So-and-so. But here in this church, according to the gospel, uh, we want to be as Boaz was. We're looking for these people. We're playing offense with these people. 
because eventually we're going to be these people too and we're going to need each other. So from this Ruth narrative, you see that Boaz is doing the right thing. He is fulfilling his Redeemer obligations. We see that he's very shrewd as he deals with Mr. So-and-so. And as you read the rest of the narrative, you see that God just keeps dumping buckets of blessings on Boaz and Ruth. It's, it, the, the, the blessings aren't done when, when, uh, when Mr. So-and-so uh, uh, neglects the deal, when he refuses the deal. It just keeps going. So you get this tension. It's resolved that Ruth and Naomi aren't going to end up with Mr. So-and-so, but they're going to end up with Boaz. This contract's been signed. The sandal has been passed. The deal's done. And now you have Ruth... She's Mrs. Boaz now. And Naomi, they're guaranteed to be taken care of. The reversal of their circumstances is unbelievable. It's just months before that Ruth has lost her husband, that she had left her home country, that she had no, virtually no possibility of marrying again or having children. This is emptiness, friends. It's a miserable life. But because Ruth made the costly decision to love Naomi... She belongs to the Lord. She belongs to the Lord's people. This is fullness. And you'd think that maybe the deal would be over, that we'd get this, maybe we'd just get these parting words of verse 10. The verse 10, that the contract's done, we got Mrs. Boaz, she signed off, life is over. But that's not what happens. Praise gets dumped on Ruth and Boaz by two different groups in verses 11 and 12. Do you see it? Two different groups. You have the elders are praising them, and you've got the people at the gate who are praising them. Now, uh, <clears throat> Ruth and Boaz, they were so into each other that they didn't need anyone else to be excited. They didn't need it. But the community just fans the flames of their marriage. They fan it so much that they break out into song. Look at verse 12. There's this weird line I've got to unpack here. It says, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, that probably didn't mean anything to me. I read through the book five times, and I, it didn't mean anything to me uh, last month when I read through it until this week. I had to remember who is Tamar. I had to refresh myself. I had to go back to Genesis 38 to see who Tamar was. Well, Tamar uh, was the wife of Judah's eldest son. Uh, Judah's eldest son died, and so Tamar had to go to the next oldest son, the second son. The second son didn't want Tamar. He didn't want to carry on his brother's name, so he refused to have sex with her. Now Judah, the dad, uh, Judah thinks Tamar's cursed. So now he's not going to give Tamar like he was supposed to, to his third son. He passes the buck. But Tamar is gutsy, just like Ruth. Tamar knows that probably the reason that she was being rejected was the fact that she was a Canaanite. So she ensured that she would get pregnant. And she did it by going to Judah. She goes to Judah dressed up, disguised like a prostitute. And she visits Judah. And Judah takes her in. Judah gets her pregnant, not knowing that it's Tamar. And then she shows back up to Judah and said, you're the one who got me pregnant. I made sure that you carried on the line of your first son. And she has a son named Perez. So really what these people are singing to Ruth and Boaz at the gate is that, man, your all story sounds a lot like somebody else's story. Tamar and Perez. 
they're recognizing this pattern of a gutsy, childless foreigner, both Ruth and Tamar, being blessed by the Lord. And so to receive this blessing from the townspeople, when they, when they heard that, they knew a baby's on the way. If Tamar had a baby with Perez, Ruth's going to have a baby with Boaz. And so Ruth and Boaz, they do. They have a son. And the women, uh, you, you, the women, this third party, you had the elders, you had the people at the gate. Now you've got a third group of, of people singing a song. And this people sings a song to Naomi. And when they sing this song, well, why do they sing it to Naomi? Why do they do this? It's just the grandma. Well, for one, they're recognizing that God has provided for her. Because she's going to be provided for no matter what because of the passing of the sandal onto Boaz. So Boaz is going to take care of her. But they could have sung to her before the baby was born, couldn't they? Well, now she's got a backup plan. She's got an insurance policy. It's Obed. Now if something happened to Boaz, Obed would now take care of his grandmother. See, these women, they realize that God's at work. He's at work behind the scenes. Naomi didn't realize that God was at work behind the scenes when Ruth committed herself to her. They realized just how perfect that Ruth is. That's why uh, they say that she's uh, equal to seven sons, the perfect number. So this boy, Obed, is a big, big deal. It's a big deal for Boaz. His line goes forward. It's a big deal for Naomi. She's got an insurance policy. It's a big deal for Ruth because she had been infertile. But the story's not about Obed. And you get the clue in that genealogy. Did you catch it when I read it? Do you see who Obed was the grandfather of? Do you see it? The great King David. Now, I know when you see a genealogy, at least like me, I just read past it. You know, you never get a Sunday school lesson when you're a kid on a genealogy. Uh, you, you probably don't have that uh, written on a, a three-by-five card, put it in your car or on your refrigerator, the genealogy. It's usually not what we do. But that's where the clue's at. We see this isn't just a dusty family tree. It's our clue that God's been pursuing bigger purposes all along. This story is really not about this, this Disney romance of Ruth and Boaz so they could live happily ever after. God's doing so much more than just personally filling the emptiness of these two women. He's filling the need of a nation for a king. This is the great King David. He's the king of all kings in the Old Testament. He has all kinds of accolades, all kinds of accomplishment. But you know the chink is in his armor, don't you? He spoiled his sons, and they were a wreck. He planned the murder of Uriah. He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. I mean, David's a mess. But God made a promise to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells David, there will always be someone on your throne who is one of your descendants. So when you get to the New Testament, we find another genealogy in the book of Matthew. And what Matthew wants to do is trace Jesus' lineage back to King David. See, Jesus is like the great, 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 great grandson of Obed. And as he's doing this genealogy, Matthew is doing some weird things. He's putting in the names of women. This never happened in the first century. And we see four women in this chapter. The first one we see is Tamar. 
I just told you about Tamar. She disguised herself as a prostitute. Jesus' lineage. The second woman that we see here, the only other place you're going to find Ruth in all the Bible, verse 5, is in Matthew. Jesus' lineage. The other woman that we find here is Rahab. You can Google Rahab in the book of Joshua. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute. There's a fourth woman we find here, and it's Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the adulteress of David. Seedy, isn't it? Sounds shady. And these were all Jesus' descendants. Jesus could have chosen to be descended from anyone at all, but he chooses this soiled line. Why? Matthew 1 verse 21 tells us he came to be the Savior of sinners. People just like his ancestors and people just like you and me. Jesus, when he came, he, he, he couldn't save us with just using protective gloves and hand sanitizers and gas masks. That's not what he does. He can't eliminate our infection that way. Our infection, that of being frail, being needy, being sinful, being sorrowful, being broken. Jesus didn't stay at a distance from that. Rather, he identified himself fully, so closely that he ended up getting infected. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. He who knew no sin... He who knew us, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the only way for you and I to be cured from this disease of sin is for Jesus to take on our sin, to receive the punishment that our sin deserves. Friends, this is what happened at the cross. You and I can be forgiven. We can be in right relationship with God by putting our faith in Christ's death for our sin. And the result isn't just forgiveness, isn't just having our sin taken away. The result, too, is that we get the righteousness of God. The righteousness that Jesus earned by being perfectly obedient in his life. All of that obedience is now reckoned and credited to us by faith in Jesus. This is huge implications. That means when God the Father sees you, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. He no longer sees your sin but he sees what Jesus earned on you. This is glorious grace, and it's the kind of grace that we see in Ruth. And this kind of grace that we see in Ruth, it has so many implications for our lives. Let me just choose one. The one implication that the, the gospel that we see in Ruth has for us is that it crushes our cynicism. Think about these two women, Ruth and Naomi. Uh, I, they could have been professional cynics. They'd, they'd suffered so much. They lost their husband. Naomi lost her sons. Naomi lived through a famine. Ruth had battled infertility. Ruth had to deal with an ungrateful mother-in-law. Ruth was a minority. They were both poor, suffering. So if I were Ruth or I were Naomi, I, I would have said something like this at some point because I was so beaten down by life. I probably would have said something like, this is my lot. I'm cursed. Life just isn't worth living anymore. And if you've gotten to that place, I know I have. You know who's at work. Satan. If you begin to lose hope, you can be assured that you've begun to believe Satan's lies. See, behind this resigning to a life of suffering with no hope, to believe that God is good. 
is Satan. Think of what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. God had been so gracious to Adam and Eve. He created them. He gave them paradise to live in. He gave them each other. He gave himself. He walked with them in the cool of the day. And he's even gracious in his one commandment to them. He didn't leave it a secret what would happen. He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the one thing. But you know what the serpent came out and did? The serpent came out and said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now God didn't say that. God said you can eat from any tree you want except this one. But that's what Satan does. He distorts what God says. What Satan does is that he exaggerates the limitations that God puts on us so that we question the goodness of God, especially in the midst of our cynicism. What Satan wants you to do is to believe that resurrection is impossible. He wants you to believe that God's malicious, that he's vindictive, that he's prickly, and that he by no means is gracious. But that's exactly who God is. So where are you on this trajectory are you in the middle of dealing with tragedy, with disappointment, with loss, with heartache, with emptiness? Well, I'm here, and I'm here on behalf of our gracious God to declare to you that your suffering will not last forever. Your struggle will not endure for eternity. A new day's coming. In fact, a new day is here, and resurrection's on the way. Now, Naomi never receives an explanation for why she had to endure what she endured. Her husband never came back. There's just no substitute for the loss she's endured. Yet, God brought her unexpected fullness by giving her Ruth, by giving her Obed. He met her physical needs. So, friends, resurrection for you is not just going to be this theoretical, spiritual, future idea, but it can be a reality in your life in the here and now. I don't know what God's going to do to bring you resurrection, but I can guarantee you that it's coming. So put away the lies that God isn't good because they're not true. God really is good and he really does love you and resurrection's on the way. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our cynicism. Uh, Lord, I, I pray uh, that we wouldn't outline our plan for how you will fill us. But Lord, I pray that we would wait in expectation. Lord, I pray that as a community, we would celebrate as you bring redemption to us. Do this, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.